I'd like you to take a Bible. Eventually, we're going to end up in 1 Samuel 29 and 30. I'd also like you, as we begin, to find Matthew chapter 20. So you can maybe mark those pages, 1 Samuel 29 and 30, and then Matthew 20. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes the holidays can feel like the most exhausting time of year with all the travel and all the things that you have to do and the calendar fills up and uh, just the activity and the busyness of it. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but we just sang hymn 93. It came upon the midnight clear. And I just want to read you the third verse that we sang just a minute ago. All ye beneath life's crushing load whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. My guess is you felt like that at some point in the last year. Maybe today, maybe this last week, maybe it's coming for you, but you felt like you're beneath a crushing load, you're bending low, you're toiling along, your steps are slow, and then the hope of Christmas, the hope of the gospel is look now for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing, oh rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. The story we're going to talk about tonight is a story about people who needed rest. And I think that on some level you'll be able to relate to that. Just weariness, tiredness, uh, fatigue, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, all of it. On some level you've experienced what we're going to talk about tonight. And there is hope. We're going to see it tonight and uh, see how that hope changes us. So I want to begin with a, a story. I want to tell you a local story about a guy in this area who needed to build some fence. He needed to build some pipe fence, um, something similar to that. Okay? He needed a decent amount of pipe fence built, and he needed it built pretty quick. And so he said, I need to hire some guys to help me build this fence. And so he had arranged with some fellas. He said, I'll meet you at this place at this time. I'll pick you up uh, before the sun comes up. We'll go out to the location we'll start working on the fence. So he picks these guys up, he takes them out, they start early, long before the sun comes up, they start working on this fence. And a good crew, they're working hard. About mid-morning, the guy who needs the fence built, he runs into town and he says, hey, I gotta go get some supplies. So he goes to get some supplies. And while he's in town, he runs into some guys that he knows. They're just sort of there at the shop and he says, hey, I need more hands, do you guys wanna come work? So they say, absolutely. We're looking for work. He takes them out, and he sort of adds to his crew. Now he's doubled the size of his crew. Before long, everybody gets hungry. It's lunchtime, so he runs into town, and he goes to Taco Villa, and he gets a big bag of bean burritos, and he drives them back out. And while he's driving back, he sees some guys that he knows. And he says, hey, I need this fence built. We're not making progress fast enough. Would you like to come help? They say, absolutely, we'd love to come help. So he sort of adds to his crew as he's coming back with lunch. It's 4 o'clock. It's happy hour at Sonic. Everybody needs a vanilla Dr. Pepper, so he runs in, and he's parked there waiting on his Dr. Peppers at Sonic, and he looks across the way, and there's some guys sitting in a truck at a stall, and he says, hey, I know those guys. I wonder if they would want to work. So he goes over, and he asks them. They say, yeah, you buy us a vanilla Dr. Pepper. We'll come work for you. So he adds to his order, gets the, the sonic drinks, takes them back. Six o'clock dinner, same thing happens. 
He goes in for dinner, comes back. He's added to the crew. He's picked up some more guys. And then it's starting to get late, but everyone's hungry, so he goes in for a, a DQ blizzard run. And he's picking up blizzards for everybody, and there's some guys, Phil's there eating a blizzard, and he says, hey, maybe you guys want to come and uh, work with me. It's almost the end of the day, but we really need one last push on this fence. And so the guys go back. They get their ice cream. They go back. They finish the fence. End of the day, fence is done. And it's time to settle up. And here's how it's all worked. With the first crew of guys that he originally had arranged with to work, he told these guys, I'm going to pay you 500 bucks a day. 500 bucks for one day's work. I got to get this fence done today. They said, that sounds great to us. We'll do it. Everyone else he added during the day, he just said to them, I'm going to pay you. Would you like to come work? And they said, absolutely, we'd like to come work. So the end of the day, it's time to settle up. He starts with the guys who came back with the DQ blizzards, right? The guys who just worked an hour or two. And he lays down on the table, $100 bill, $200 bill, $300, $400, $500. And those guys say, it's the greatest day's work I've ever done free DQ blizzard. I was here an hour and a half. I really just sort of picked up when you guys were putting the finishing touches on it. 500 bucks. That's fantastic. Next group of guys walk up. Guys who came with dinner. 500 bucks. Pretty good deal, right? Come back, eat dinner, work a few hours in the evening. It's not hot. Sort of the cool of the day. $500. They're satisfied. Guys who came back with the Sonic drinks. 500. Guys who came back with lunch, 500. Guys who came back mid-morning, first supply run, 500. And then you come to the guys he had originally agreed to pay. And they've watched the whole thing unfold. And if you've read the New Testament, you know this is not a real story. This is a West Texas version of a story Jesus told. And I just want you to read how it ends. Matthew 20, verse 10, says, When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received $500, a.k.a. a denarius. On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. And you know as well as I know exactly what they said, that's not fair. They grumbled, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Do you know how hot it is in West Texas? But he replied to one of them, friend, friend. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for $500, a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. The story that we're going to talk about tonight is, I think, eerily similar to the parable Jesus told about the laborers 
in the vineyard. And this idea that we worked all day long, we should have a greater reward than those who didn't. And there's got to be an adjustment in our mindset. There's got to be an adjustment as you think about this story and who the bad guys are and the good guys are. I'm just going to give you the spoiler alert as you think about Jesus' parable. The bad guys in Jesus' parable are the guys who worked all day long. They're the villains, the ones who come up after a hard day's work and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you owe us more than that. That's not fair. We don't like how you're, you're handing out paychecks here. And in our story, we're going to look at tonight in 1 Samuel 29 and 30, there's an, an interesting, maybe you could say a surprising villain as well. I want to just remind you a little bit of the context so you can make sense of what we're going to talk about in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 28 is sort of a, you might call it a one-off chapter. It's a story about Saul. It really sort of interrupts what we've been studying as we've worked through the life of David. And it's just sort of a, a chapter that gets thrown in at the end of this book and it's sort of telling you Saul is on his way down, right? He is on the downhill slide. There's no stopping it at this point. He's just about to completely crash and burn. And so you can look at chapter 28. Chapter 27 is a story of David running away, and he runs to the Philistines. And initially he goes to Gath, and then he ends up at a city named Ziklag. And so I'll put a map up that just sort of gives you an idea. You can see Gath over on the left, up at the top. And then I gave you a red circle down here. Ziklag is sort of in that area-ish. And I'd like to put a line up there and say this was Philistine territory and this was Israelite territory. Right? We have borders on maps, and we say this is where it is, this is the line. If you cross it here, you're there, or if you cross it there, you're, you're here. There's no line. It's all very fuzzy. And the Philistines take some land, and then Israel might take some land, and there's sort of a back and forth in there. And David, down here in Ziklag, is really kind of in no man's land. Technically, he's in the territory of Judah that belongs to Israel, the nation of Israel, but really the Philistines at this point control this area, and so he's just kind of out there in, in no man's land. And we talked about chapter 27. This is one of the saddest seasons of David's life because the Philistine king lives in Gath, and at this point David has acknowledged that he is the servant of the Philistine king. I'm your servant. And he's living down a little bit away from the capital, a little bit away from Gath. He's living in Ziklag, and he's living a lie. And it's really not a good lie. He's telling the king of the Philistines, every day, every week, every month, we're traveling out to the east, and we're raiding villages and tribes and peoples. And the Philistine king hears that, and he says, great, that's the direction of Israel. If you go raid those guys, you're raiding my enemies, and I'm happy for you to do that. In all reality, what David is doing is sort of going off to the west and he's raiding Canaanite tribes, sometimes even Philistine tribes and cities. And when he goes, he's wiping everyone out in the town so that no one can live to tell the Philistine king what's really happening. And this happens for over a year where he's just slaughtering people and he's lying about it. And when you read about this season of David's life, it doesn't talk about any psalms that he's writing at this period. There's no psalms that pin 
the, the timing or the context to this season of his life. There's no prayers. David is talking to himself. We mentioned that last week, but he's not inquiring of the Lord. It's just kind of a dark, depressing season of David's life. And some of that sin, 1 Samuel 27, is about to come home to roost in 1 Samuel 29. In the end, David comes out uh, on the better side of things, and it's an interesting story to see how that happens. Here's a few quotes just to get us started. I couldn't, I couldn't pick between the two of these, so I gave you two sort of opening quotes tonight. Peterson says this, The Brook Besor marks an important episode in human history. An event was enacted there that's definitive for people whose family tree goes back to Jesus, a tree of life with roots in David. I've never understood why the Brook Besor doesn't rank along with other definitive place names, Bethany, Galilee, Shiloh, Calvary, Bethel. But that portion of the David story that, that originates at the Brook Besor keeps being reenacted among men and women who stay in touch with the God of their everydayness. What he's saying is there's something about this story we're about to look at that ought to get relived in your life over and over and over and over. There's something positive that you need to take away here. Lakato, in fewer words, says it like this, don't feel bad if you've never heard of the place, Besor. Most haven't, but more need to. The Brook Besor narrative deserves shelf space in the library of the worn out. It speaks tender words to the tired heart. Hopefully you see some encouragement as we look at this story tonight. So let's talk about David. He spends 16 months living in Ziklag as a servant of the Philistine king Achish. I mentioned that to you already. You can read it in 27, 5 to 7. David confesses it again in 29, 8. He just acknowledges, I am the servant of you, Achish, king of the Philistines. The anointed king of Israel is just voluntarily calling himself the servant of the Philistine king. The man who slayed Goliath is putting himself under the authority of the king of the Philistines. This sojourn, this time he spends in Ziklag, led to a, a disastrous scenario. The anointed king of Israel was prepared to march into battle against Israel. And I'm not going to read all of 29. I'm going to let you read some of that on your own. But here's the scenario. David's been going on these raids. And the king of the Philistines gathers all his generals up and he says, hey, we're going to war. David, you're pretty much one of us at this point. Why don't you march out to battle with us? And David's kind of backed into a corner here. What are you going to do? You can either admit that you've been living a lie for over a year and face the consequences. There's the king and all of his generals and all of their armies. You can deal with the consequences in that way, or you can just sort of say, okay. And David says, okay. And they pick up their weapons, David and his men, and they march out. Just think about what I'm saying to you. March out with the Philistines as they're preparing to ta attack Israel. How is David going to walk that back later if he becomes king? I mean, you know the political climate we live in. People are people. 
We've always played the gotcha game. Can you imagine David later being anointed king or people wanting to anoint him king and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. He fought with the Philistines. I mean, it'd be like somebody 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago running for president saying, I was a Nazi soldier. I fought for the Nazis. Now I want to be president of the United States. That's sort of the scenario that we're about to wade into here. King of Israel is marching out to battle with the Philistines, and they're about to attack Israel. In the end, it's not David that puts an end to it. David's just sort of along for the ride here, and eventually the Philistine generals say, Hey, Achish, we don't really want him to come. We think you ought to send him back. And there's some drama. David sort of puts on, and you can think he's putting on an act or he's being genuine, but David sort of says, hey, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to fight. And the generals say, no, 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 we, we don't want you to fight. There's a previous episode you can read about, 1 Samuel 14. There was a a group of Hebrew defectors that fought with the Philistines. They march out to battle, and at the last second in the middle of the battle, they turn against the Philistines and fight with Israel. Maybe the generals remembered that. And maybe in the back of their mind, they thought that's what David was going to do. Maybe that's what David was going to do. We don't know the answer to it. What we do know is he is literally marching into battle with the Philistines, And God, through these Philistine generals, God uses them to spare David from this disastrous moment. And David and his men turn around and they start to go back to Ziklag. Now, I found a picture that sort of, I think, shows you what it was like for David and his men to walk away from this battle and to go back to Ziklag. Here's the picture. You ready? Okay. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. I mean, look, the frying pan was bad for David, right? You're about to fight your own people. You're the anointed king of Israel, and you're about to go fight them in battle. But now it gets even worse for David, right? He spared the battle, but he goes home, and I just want you to read with me what happens in Ziklag. David and his men return to Ziklag. They find the city burned. And their families are captured. The city's burned and their families are captured. This is where I want us to do a little bit of reading. 1 Samuel 30 verse 1. David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. So they've been walking for three days. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, which is unusual, but they carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. I just want you to listen to what we're about to read in these next verses. David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Just keep that detail filed away, Nabal. We're going to come back to him in a minute. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. 
because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. And we're going to stop right there in the middle of verse 6. I don't know how you and I try to imagine and put into words the emotion that these men were feeling in this moment. They've been right on the edge of a very stressful situation. We're about to march into battle with the Philistines and fight our own people. Maybe the plan was we're going to turn on them in the middle of the battle. Maybe the plan was we're just going to fight with the Philistines. That's the side we're on right now. I don't know what the plan was, but you're right there on the edge of something very, very dramatic. You get saved from it at the 11th hour. You walk three days back home, and on the horizon you can see the smoke. You can smell it. You walk into your town, your home base, everyone's gone. Everything's burned. Your wife is gone. Your kids are gone. Your grandkids, gone. Everyone's gone. Verse 4, they wept until they had no more strength to weep. Verse 6, they were greatly distressed. David was greatly distressed. The people spoke of stoning him. This is what I mean, out of the frying pan and into the fire. You're in a really, really tough spot. You get out of it. You're exhausted after a three-day march, and you're right back into it. Now it's your own people who are turning on you, right? The buck stops with David. And there's conversations taking place amongst these 600 men. They're not nice men. They're bad dudes. They're killers. There's talk about stoning David. Now look, I'm just going to make a point here. If you hear a rumor that someone in our church is sort of floating the idea that we're going to get together and stone you, you probably don't have to believe it because we're a bunch of softies. Not going to happen. Right? You, you might hear it and say, eh, I think I might become a Methodist. Those guys are kind of mean. But you're probably not really going to think that when you walk in the building, you're going to get hit with rocks. That's not us. We might do a lot of rotten things. We're not going to do that thing. These guys talking about killing David, they'll do it. They've done it before. It wouldn't be their first kill for any of them. And they're putting their heads together in secret conversations, and some of them obviously not so secret, saying, let's kill him. So David is facing physical danger and emotional danger. Physically, there's a mob that wants to kill him. They want to pick up rocks. They want to throw them at David until he's dead. Emotionally, I want you to think about where David's at right now. He is literally at this moment entirely and completely alone. You ever heard the phrase, You're, you feel alone in a crowded room? Right? That's David. He's got 600 guys standing around him. He is completely alone on every level. He's separated from his nation, living as an exile. He's separated from his family. Some of them are estranged at this point. Some of them have been kidnapped, but he's completely separated from his family. He's separated from his best friend, Jonathan. 
He's separated from his Lord, and I mean that lowercase l, Lord, Achish, right? At least with Achish, he had sort of an ally. The whole thing might have been based on a lie, but Achish actually did like David. He's separated from him now, and now he's separated from his own men, his own army, because they've turned on him, and they want to kill him. Worst of all, he's separated from the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Up to this point in the story, he's not praying, he's not singing, he's not writing psalms, he's not inquiring of the Lord. All he's doing is listening to himself and focusing on the enemy. Lakato says it this way, a man all alone like that, he's a psycho in the making. He's rejected by every significant circle in his life. This could be his worst hour, but he makes it one of his best. And there's a beautiful picture here of where do you turn when you literally have nowhere else to turn. And you've heard the expression, I've hit rock bottom, I've come to the end of my rope, I've run through all my resources, I've burned all my bridges. That's David in this moment. There is literally nowhere left for him to look for help. It's an act of God's grace that God has brought him to this point. When you get to that point in your life, you may not feel like God is being very gracious to you. You may feel like God is crushing you. You may feel like God is pressing you. You may feel like God is not concerned for you. But when he brings you to the end of all the other options that you've been turning to, that's an act of his grace, and he's being gracious to David. David found strength by turning, finally, to the Lord. In the middle of his distress, he finally turns to the Lord. He's got nowhere else to look, and so he finally looks at Uh, towards the Lord. Let's read 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, the rest of verse 6 through verse 10. David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. You understand that. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, and it's all caps. He strengthened himself in Yahweh, his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, right? He's talking to the Lord. He's talking to the priest. He says to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord. If you're reading this and you've been reading the last few chapters, you get to that phrase and you say, finally, what have you been waiting on? Why didn't you do this when you were marching out with the Philistines? Why didn't you do this when you were raiding these villages and killing everybody? Why didn't you do this when you were calling yourself the servant of the king of the Philistines? Finally, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He, that's the Lord, answered him, that's David, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, And the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. You don't know about that, but you're about to. Verse 10, David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, underline this phrase, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Just file that in your brain. Why did they stay? They were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. This is not the mighty Mississippi. 
This is not like they couldn't make the, the swim across torrential waters. This is quite literally a brook. Seasonally, it might completely dry up. This is not hard, but they are so exhausted they can't cross, and so 200 of them stay. David leaves 200 tired men at the brook. I just want you to think about, if you can, putting yourself in the, the shoes of those who stay, the 200. Lakato asked this question, how tired does a person have to be to abandon the hunt for his own family? It's pretty tired, right? March three days back, you weep until you have no more strength to weep. You march off again to try to get back everything that you've lost. And at some point, you just say, I can't, I can't go one more step. I can't cross the brook. If you're going to go on, you're going to go on without me. I know it's my wife. I know it's my son. I know it's my daughter, but I can't go on. How tired does a person have to be to abandon the hunt for his own family? He makes this point of application. The church has its quorum of such folks. Good people. Godly people. Only hours or years ago, they marched with deep resolve, but now fatigue consumes them. They're exhausted, beat up, worn down. They can't summon the strength to save their own flesh and blood. Every night in Odessa, Texas, tired people, and I don't just mean sleepy. I mean exhausted people fill bars and game rooms across this town. They're looking for some sort of relief, some sort of rest, some sort of something to live for. And on Sundays, some of them walk through these doors. Guess what? When they walk in and they make eye contact with you, they smile. And when you say, hi, how are you this morning? What do they say? I'm fine. How are you? And you probably reply, I'm fine. They're exhausted. They're worn out. They're hurt. They're discouraged. They're depressed. They don't even know why they walked in the doors that particular Sunday morning. And there's a question, what are we as a church going to do with those people? What are you going to do when those people walk through the door? This kind of fatigue, what's it caused by? Age, sickness, defeat, disappointment, divorce, family issues, parents or children, addiction, job loss. What are you going to do with these people? You basically have two options. You can cut off the dead weight and say, look, pull yourselves up or we're leaving you behind. Or we can graciously let them rest for a while. What are we going to do with these people? 200 are left at the brook Besor. David took 400 men, and he recovered the people and the possessions. 200 stay, 400 go and fight. I'm going to let you read about the fighting, verse 11 to 20. Here's the, 
the Cliffs Notes. 400 take off. They find a half-dead Egyptian. He had been abandoned by the Amalekites because he was too tired to go on, so they just left him, dead weight, leave him behind. He helps David find the Amalekites. They're overconfident. They haven't set a guard. They're probably drunk. Lakato says they were sitting ducks, and pretty soon they were dead ducks. David and the 400 men swoop in. None of David or his men die in the battle. They get everyone back who had been taken from Ziklag. They get all of their stuff back, plus they get all the stuff that the Amalekites had. In the end, they're coming back from this battle, David and the 400, richer than they were before the whole thing happened. No one dies. They all go home with more money in their pocket. David, this is the the greatest part of the story. David insists that the 200 tired men are treated graciously. I just want to read with you 1 Samuel 30, starting in verse 21. It says, Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David. Remember, we read that up in verse 10. They left them because they were too exhausted. And the author tells you again, they were too exhausted to follow David. They had been left at the brook Besor. They went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Greeted them, the 200. He didn't thumb his nose at them. He didn't roll his eyes at them. He didn't say, I hope you had a good nap. He didn't say, man, we could have really used you guys. He greets them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, We will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife, children, and depart. Do you hear what they're saying? Here's the 400 walking up. The 200 are coming out, and the wicked, worthless fellows say, Look, I don't want your wife, and I'm not raising your kid, but you're not getting any of your stuff back. I'm going to send your family home with you, but you're not getting any of the money. You're not getting any of the animals. You're not getting any of the clothing. You're not getting any of the spoils. None of it. You didn't come. David said, verse 23, you shall not do so, my brothers. You remember in the parable when they complained, the master came, and what did he say to them? Friend. Friend. Don't I get to do with my money what I want to do, friend? David says here, you will not do this, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. And you ought to underline that phrase. The Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Okay, put the pieces together here. The 400 fighters did not want to give the plunder 
to the 200 nappers. The fighters said, we're not giving any of the plunder to the nappers. And I'll be honest with you. I'll just be honest. There is something deep in my soul that really resonates with the fighters. There is something in me when I read this story that says, shouldn't you at least take a little off the top? Okay, we're going to give you your family back. We're going to give you your stuff back. But surely we're not going to give them what we took from the Amalekites, are we? We're going to be square with them. But surely the guy who stayed and took a nap by the brook, doesn't that sound nice? I'm just going to lay down by this brook and take a nap while you go fight. Surely we're not going to give him an equal share. The 200 nappers would have been shamed by their families. This really isn't mentioned in the story, but I just want you to think about it. The author says the 200 nappers go out to meet this returning group. Can you imagine if your wife was in the group coming back and you were a napper? Or can you imagine being the wife or the son or the daughter? Imagine that you've been kidnapped in Ziklag and they take you off. The Amalekites take you. Nobody dies, but everybody gets kidnapped. They march you off down the road and they're laughing and they're teasing and they're joking and they have a big keg party that night and you hear some noise outside the camp and you recognize some voices and you see some faces you know and you say, hey, these are our guys. David and the boys have come to get us and you're looking around and you say, there's Joe's dad and there's Jimmy's dad and there's Bob's husband and, or Susan's husband. I hope it's not Bob's husband. There's Susan's husband, whoever. You know all these faces, and you're one of these wives, and you say, where's my husband? Somebody has to say to you, well, he's taking a nap at the brook. He was just too tired. He was tired from, you weren't too tired, obviously, she says. Yes, but your husband, he was just he was worn out. Or what about kids? You know how kids tease each other on the playground. My dad this, my dad that. Can you imagine some of those kids saying, well, my dad came to rescue us. Did you see how many Amalekites he killed? Man, he was cutting throats left and right. It was fantastic. What did your dad do? Oh, that's right. He took a nap. He didn't even come for you. These guys are about to be humiliated. One of the authors I read had a, a quip that went something like this. You can imagine the wives saying, oh, my husband stayed at Basor. I'll tell you who's going to be sore when I get back. Lakato says, rescued wives, angry. The rescuers, resentful. What about the 200 men who rested? Worms have higher self-esteem. They feel as manly as a lace doily. A Molotov cocktail of emotions is stirred, lit, and handed to David. What are you going to do, David? 
you got everything back. You got 400 guys that went to fight. You got a lot of stuff to divvy up. And you got 200 guys who stayed back and took a nap. The text has told you two times why they stayed. Why did they stay? Verse 10. They were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Look down, verse 21. The 200 men, they had been too exhausted to follow David. What does David say when they get back? Does he say, well, they were really tired. What does he say? He says, these stayed with the baggage. Some went down to battle. Some stayed by the baggage. Now, you read that. And you think, eh, still kind of lame, right? Still not very manly. But if you've been reading in the book of 1 Samuel, you might remember a battle that almost took place between David and his men and a fool named Nabal and his men, right? You can go back and read this story. David is so mad at Nabal for his refusal to show hospitality. David looks at everybody and he says, this is what we're going to do. 400 of you get your sword. 200 of you are going to stay here and guard the camp. 400 going to fight. 200 staying. That was the plan. That was the tactical strategy. We're not going to leave ourselves defenseless, but we're going to take out this fool and some of you are going to stay here with the stuff. It didn't end up happening because Abigail intervened. But that had been a previous military plan. What does David do when he has the opportunity to shame these 200 nappers? He could have very easily said, you know, they were just really tired. They needed a rest. We gave them a rest. It would have been true. He wouldn't have been lying. He wouldn't have been slandering anybody. But instead, he helps them save face and he says, you know what? Some of us went to fight. Some of us stayed with the stuff. On the surface of it, it's not a great excuse because the Amalekites had all the stuff. But some of us stayed with the stuff. David is dignifying their rest. He's not laughing at them. He's not teasing them. He's not mocking them. He's not putting them down. He's not making them second class. He's simply saying, we're in this together. We're in this together. Some of us went and fought, and some of us didn't. David refuses to throw these guys under the bus. He dignifies the rest of the 200 nappers and insists that they be shown grace because he knows that the battle had been won by the Lord. You remember what I asked you to underline? Verse 23, David said, we're not going to do this, brothers. That's not how it's going to go down. We are not going to do this with what the Lord has given us. We didn't win that battle. The Lord won that battle. We didn't, we didn't get all that stuff back. The Lord gave it back to us. He, he knows who's behind it all. And he gives credit to the Lord. And in giving credit to the Lord, he says, why are we going to laugh at these guys? Why are we going to tease these guys? Why are we going to put these guys down? The Lord's been behind it all. We're all in it together, and we're going to be gracious to these men. This is, think about this. We're not only going to be gracious to these men, but we're going to make a rule from now on, this is how it goes. We're gracious with each other. 
We're not going to play on a merit-based point system. We're not going to keep score for each other or against each other. That's not how it's going to be. The ones who go fight, the ones who stay, we're all going to share in the victory. He dignifies their rest. One last thought, and this is, this is hard for some of us to wrap our minds around. The men who didn't want to show grace to the 200 nappers are called worthless fellows. They're the bad guys in the story. Not the Amalekites who are called the worthless fellows, those worthless Amalekites. It's the men who risked their lives to get back their wives and their children and their stuff and the wives and the children of the stuff of the 200 men who took a nap. It's those men who come back and they don't want to share. They don't want to be gracious. They want to keep score for and against. The text calls them worthless fellows, all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, they didn't go up, we're not going to give them anything. In Jesus' parable, it's the people who worked all day long. All day long who are the villains who come up at the end and say, you owe us more than what you gave to them. They're the bad guy in the parable. The worthless fellows. Peterson says, strong words it would seem for what sounds like common sense and plain justice. Most of us would say, I'm for common sense. I'm for plain justice. The math adds up. It just, it makes sense that we would do it this way. Why would you call them worthless fellows? Until we remember who these people are and where they are. These are the men of Ziklag with nothing in their backgrounds to be proud of. All of them picked up from a disreputable life and brought through no merit of their own into the net of God's providence of salvation. Everything they experienced was sheer grace. Who are these 400 men? They're the debtors, the disgruntled, the disenfranchised, the people who have been kicked to the curb by society, people who had no place in Israel. They're the ones, the malcontents who gathered to David. Everything they had was a gift of God's grace. David saw that. He hasn't seen it for a long time, but in this moment he sees it. And he says, the Lord gave us this victory. We are going to be gracious to our brothers. When you read this story, when you read Jesus and the parable of the laborers, you come away understanding this. When you experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ, when you experience that, it will make you a gracious person. When you understand how kind and how generous and how merciful God has been to you, how unworthy and how undeserving you are, that everything you have the Lord has given to you, every good thing is a gift from him. When that sinks down, you will not look at other people and keep score. You will not look at other people and hold grudges. You will look at other people and be gracious. Experiencing and receiving God's grace ought to make you a gracious person. And as a church, I circle back to what we read earlier. Tired, hurting, broken, worn out people walk into this building every Sunday, every Wednesday night. They sit and worship, they sing the songs, they fill the blanks out, they smile, they go home. 
They're crushed. What do we do with those people? Do we look at those people and say, man, you really need to start pulling your weight around here. You are the most worthless bump on a log I've ever seen. You are just a, uh, are, are you glued to that pew seat? Can you ever get off of it and do anything? Do you know how many times I've worked in the nursery over the last six months? Why have you not taken a turn back there? I deserve better than being back there all the time. You're going to keep score? Remember, in, in the parable of the laborers, it's the bad guys who keep score. It's the ones who complain about that's not fair who are the villains. In this story, the worthless fellows are not the Amalekites, but they're the people who didn't want to extend grace. When you have had an experience of God's grace in Jesus, you will be a gracious person to others. This story of Besor is a beautiful picture of, of God through David dignifying the rest of these men and showing them grace. And I pray that that would be us, that would be our church, uh, that would be something that marks us as individuals and as a church family.